All right, why don't we get started? Welcome, everyone. So the copier ran out of paper while I was making notes, so there's some back there now, and then Laura's going to bring the rest in when they finish. So don't feel bad about getting up and grabbing a copy of the notes if you want them. Um, one update, uh, last week we prayed for Al, who was having pretty serious surgery on his foot and ankle, and I did hear that he was able to go home after the surgery, and he's able to get up and take steps for like 15 minutes, and then he has to go back down. So it sounds like, so far, so good. So that's a blessing. Anyone else have something they wanted church to be praying about? All right. Yeah. Okay, and what's her name? Uh, Ruthie. Ruthie. So Ruthie is having symptoms, um, had some tests done, and might be a blockage around her heart, and it sounds like more tests and procedures are coming tomorrow. So definitely pray for healing there. Anything else? Yeah. Absolutely. So if you couldn't hear that, uh, one of the people she deployed with in the past uh, passed away of a heart attack at 38, leaves behind a young family, tough situation. Anything else? All right. So it looks like Lara's back with the notes if anyone needs them. You want to stash them anywhere, babe? Okay, so they'll be in the back. And why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we need your grace, your mercy, your kindness so much um, as we hear about both blessings and burdens Um, We are so thankful that you are all-powerful and that you are not limited by space or time, that your power and ability to help is not limited as well. Uh, We thank you for the good news of Al's surgery and ask that you would give him strength as he goes through the path now of rehabbing and hopefully ending up with better function. We mourn and grieve for the family that lost someone so suddenly and so young to a heart attack, and we ask for your mercy and love to be evident to that family in the midst of their struggles. We pray that you would bring people alongside them to assist them. We pray for Ruthie, who is facing uncertainty about her heart, And we ask that 
You would help her to turn to you for strength and healing and guidance. We ask in your mercy that these tests would show exactly what's going on with her heart, and there would be something that you can provide healing and care for. We thank you so much for the body of Christ that encourages and supports us during these moments. We ask that you would help us to be active parts of that and to share each other's burdens. And we do pray that you would lift up people to help Dan with the church plants and be specifically now the need is for people who are willing to pray. And so we ask that you would raise up prayer warriors so that that would um, be in step with your desires. We pray for this class and ask for your help in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, come on in. I think we do have some more notes in the back if you need those. So following up from last week, last week we made it through the story of how Mary anoints Jesus with perfume and she gets some criticism for it, but she doesn't care because she cares more about showing devotion and honor to Jesus than what other people think. And I think that becomes a model for what disciples should be. Conversely, we see Judas Iscariot, who cares more about his own financial interests than honoring Jesus. And we're going to see by the end of the chapter where that takes him. And obviously, he's um, an example to avoid. And one of the things I wanted to follow up on was one of the questions we got um, that came up in the background was, what, what do modern Jews think about atonement and repentance now that they don't have a temple where they can offer sacrifices? And so I did poke around a little bit on the Internet, and it was interesting because what I found um, is that it looks like Modern rabbis, at least in America, um, say that atonement can be obtained by genuine repentance expressed through things like prayer, studying the Torah, Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, fasting, good works such as charity or serving others. Um, They rely on verses like First Kings, which is when Solomon's dedicating the temple, um, Hosea, which talks about how you desire certain spiritual fruit more than sacrifice, Jonah, where the Ninevites repent and God accepts their repentance. And the interesting thing about that is those are the same things I, as an evangelical Christian, would point to when I'm making the argument that the animal sacrifices were never intended to be salvific. They were supposed to be an expression of genuine repentance and that even the Old Testament teaches that it's the heart attitude that's actually salvific. Um, And it's actually Messianic Jews, Christian Jews, that come back and say, you can't forget about the verses that talk about the importance of blood sacrifice. We just believe that it's Jesus that actually provides that blood sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that a blood sacrifice was not required. We think 
scripture teaches, that's one of the reasons why Jesus needs to die, to provide redemption for those who accept his offer in the gospel. And so there seems to be this kind of back and forth. The other thing that I think you pick up is that uh, the rabbis do view the current state of affairs as an accommodation and that they do believe it would be best if the temple could be rebuilt and animal sacrifices could resume. So that's, I'd say, one difference between a Christian view and modern Judaism is that I don't think we would feel that urgency because we focus on Jesus. All right. Questions, comments, concerns about that? All right. So let's push forward then with Palm Sunday. So picking up in John 12. So we started into this last week. So the day after that dinner, we're told the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, which are, remember, a symbol of national pride at this point, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And what they're doing is saying, we think Jesus is the Messiah. We're excited about that idea. We're open to him claiming the throne based on the authority of being the Davidic heir, the anointed one, the Messiah. Then Jesus found a young donkey. We get more details about how all that works in the other Gospels and sat upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So for the first time in public, Jesus does not dodge when people say, hey, you're the Messiah. By getting on this donkey and riding into Jerusalem in conscious fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, he is nonverbally acknowledging that he's the Messiah, which is a big step forward in terms of what's going on in the plot of his ministry. Let's flip back and look at Zechariah. You don't have to go far. It's one of the very last books of the Old Testament. So Zechariah 9 is what's being alluded to. It's possible John's referring to more than one Old Testament passage, that he's also referring to something in Isaiah, because Zechariah 9 actually begins slightly different than what John has in his gospel. So this may be a combined Old Testament allusion, but let's focus on Zechariah. So Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I think you can see how Jesus literally fulfills this prophecy on Palm Sunday that was made over 400 years 
before Palm Sunday occurs in either A.D. 30 or 33. But notice what follows from that, and I think you can understand the crowd's perspective. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. In other words, you won't need to worry about self-defense anymore. You won't even need a military. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So if you're an Israelite, the reason there's peace is that everyone has to submit to the Messiah. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim, I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. So if you're an Israelite reading this, I think it's, you can see why they focus on, hey, this is going to be the end of foreign oppression. So if the Messiah is arriving in Jerusalem, we're going to take down the Romans just like Moses took down the Egyptians. All right? Questions, comments, concerns so far? Jesus is going to see something more to the point that you could argue it becomes different than that, but we're going to get to that in a minute. So charge back to John, but maybe keep a finger on Zechariah. We're then told, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So this is another one of those instances where John says, when this was happening, I didn't realize everything that was going on. I think it's important to understand some nuance. John isn't saying... I didn't realize the crowd was saying they were enthusiastic about the idea of Jesus as Messiah. I think that's the part John does get when it happens. And he and the disciples are probably like, yeah, this is what I signed up for. Now we're talking, right? This is what I'm hoping for, too, that Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. Everyone's enthusiastic about him. He's recognized as a person who ought to be leading Israel. And then the whole plagues thing happened, and now it matters why I'm the third greatest in the kingdom or wherever that argument landed for them. Okay? They don't get what Jesus is about to teach and how that changes what's going on on Palm Sunday. Okay? So we'll get into that in a second. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. So even after Jesus rides through the crowd, people talk about the event. They talk about what Jesus has done, word spreading about him. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. 
Look how the whole world has gone after him. So this is key insight um, into what's motivating the leaders. And it is the crowd's opinion. And the crowd's opinion seems to be getting more enthusiastic about Jesus. So from the Pharisees' perspective, they're losing. Jesus is winning. So their view is the same probably as the disciples' view of what's going on in Palm Sunday is, oh, wow, this is a big development. People are excited about Jesus. This really matters how excited they are. But from their perspective, it's bad. It means things are going exactly the opposite of how they want. Okay? Jesus is going to see things differently. Sometime after he actually goes into Jerusalem on a donkey, we get this episode. We don't know how long, but it can't have been all that long. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. So what does it mean that they're Greeks? We don't know for sure um, because there were Jewish people who lived in what would be considered Greco areas of the empire who come to Passover in Jerusalem. So one option is what we might call a Hellenistic Jew. A second option would be what we're referred to as a God-fearer, which would be someone who is of Roman Greco ethnicity, but had become an enthusiast of the Jewish religion, but had not taken the step of getting circumcised and leaving behind their Greco-Roman culture and actually attaching themselves to Israelite culture. Those people were known as God-fearers. We know from Acts and the New Testament and from history that there's a decent amount of them around synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. So this could be actual ethnic Greeks that are interested in Judaism, and now they've heard about Jesus, and so they're interested in Jesus. And I think that's probably the better option, in part because of the connection with Zechariah. Remember how we read through Zechariah, and at the end, there was a distinction drawn between Greeks and Jews. And they were kind of set in opposition. So these people let's assume that they're Greeks, came to one of the disciples who is from Bethsaida in Galilee. Don't know why they chose Philip as the person to approach. It's possible that they are Greek God-fearers from that region. Don't know for sure. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus initially seems to be taking a hard right turn from what is the immediate issue, whether he'll actually meet with these Greeks or not. And it's almost as though Jesus views that request from these Greeks as like this move on a chessboard that puts the end game in motion. It's like he sees things have reached a tipping point. And so he says, the hour has come. He's talked about that hour in previous points in the gospel as though it was in the future. Now it's here. 
and it's the hour of his glorification. And what's interesting, and I think what John wants us to see by putting this right after Palm Sunday, is that in Jesus' mind, what happened as he was walking, as he was riding that donkey into Jerusalem, was not glorifying. It was not real glory. What he's about to experience and what he's about to teach us is what real glory is. Okay? I think this is a critical point in John's gospel that he wants us to understand. What is really glorious? He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Israel's an agrarian society. Everyone would understand what he's talking about. If you have one grain of wheat, you want more grain, you've got to plant that kernel in the ground. You could say you bury it. It decays, it transforms into something completely different. A plant sprouts up, and hopefully at the end of the day, you can end up with multiple grains. That's exactly what a farmer wants his grain to do, right? And in order for that to happen, you can't have your seed and your harvest too. you got to plant the seed in order to have the harvest. And so Jesus is saying it is necessary for the kernel to die. It's necessary for me to die. Okay. Then he expands this principle that he's applying to himself and what's about to happen to him, which he says is glorious, to his followers and all of humanity. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he's not saying you literally have to hate yourself, um, but what I think the idea he's working with is in the first century, how would you treat someone you loved versus how would you treat someone you hated? And I think in first century thought, if you had someone you loved, well, you would be nice to them. You would provide for them. You would help them. Someone you hated, you wouldn't do so much for. You might ignore them. You might not give them any assistance. And so what he's saying is you need to treat worldly success and you're standing in this world like the red-headed stepbrother that you don't care about, okay? You need to focus instead on pleasing God, which is in tension with what the world wants. And ironically, if you focus on pleasing God, and he's going to say, and that means following me, you will find eternal life. If you focus on pleasing the world, you're going to die and end up in a dead end. And if the reason you're focusing on pleasing the world is because you think that is the path to the most fulfilling life, you're dead wrong. You're actually doing the opposite of what is in your best long-term interest, right? And 
you know, when you go over this verse, you've got to quote Jim Elliott because he summed it up so well. His quote is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he lived that out. He was a missionary who went to South America trying to reach an unreached people group and was killed when they made first contact. And his point is that no matter how you die, we're all going to die. So you can't keep your life in this world. And if you are willing to devote your life to serving Jesus, you gain what you cannot lose, and you trade something you cannot keep for it. It's a wonderful summary. All right. Um, Then Jesus says, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. And I'll be honest, the first time I read that, I thought, oh, how nice. Jesus is promising wherever we are, there he is. Uh Uh-uh. Read it again. So I read it again. Where I am, my servant also will be. What he's actually saying is, I'm on the brink of being buried like a seed in a horrible way. Everyone around me is going to think I'm ridiculous Everyone's going to mock me. I'm going to die a lonely death. That's where I am. I'm on the precipice of that horrible suffering. And that's where my follower will be also. So he's saying, he's calling his followers to be willing to go through suffering like he is and to adopt his view of glory that glory is what pleases God the Father, not the world. So in another gospel, he'll say, the one who follows me must take up his cross and follow me. It's the same idea. That when we present the gospel, we aren't just talking about how wonderful eternal life is. We're talking about following Jesus on the same path he went on this earth, and that includes suffering. My father-in-law worked in Poland back when it was under the Iron Curtain, and he used to say that when Poles shared the gospel with someone else and they accepted it during those days, they would then say, your eternal destiny just got immeasurably better than you can imagine. Your life on this earth just got harder than you can imagine. Because back then, the communist government was not nice to people who believed in Jesus. And that's been the typical experience. Um, In America, we've been lucky, you could say blessed, that that hasn't been what most of us have experienced. But we need to be prepared for it. Um, Because Jesus says that is what most often happens. But there's good news. My father will honor the one who serves me. So just as this passage is going to talk about how God the Father honors and glorifies Jesus for being willing to do this, so the Father will glorify and honor the ones who follow Jesus. So there is a promise attached to it. 
All right. Um, one other thing before we talk about questions um, is I think the definition of glory is helpful to think about here. So if you go to a Greek dictionary and look up the word glory or glorify, you would find similar definitions to the one you'd find in an English dictionary of the equivalent word, which is there's what I would call an absolute sense of glory, the condition of being bright or shining, a state of being magnificent, greatness, or splendor. Then there's a third definition that covers what I would call perceived glory. So honor as enhancement or recognition of status or performance, fame, recognition, renown, honor, prestige. And similarly, you see the same division in glorify. So it could mean to cause to have splendid greatness, again, actual glory, or to influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation. I would suggest to you that as fallen human beings, and I think it continues even after we're redeemed, you struggle with blending those two and thinking that recognition from other people means you must have the first definition. And so when we see, and I think the disciples went through this, Jesus riding in to Jerusalem with the crowd yelling and shouting his praise, we think that's glory. So one of the stories my mom likes to tell about my nephew, Will, who's now a grown man, is that when Will played his first soccer game, she asked him, Will, are you excited about this soccer game? What do you want to happen? And Will, as five-year-old kids do, told the truth. He said, I want to do something great, and then I want everyone to lift me up and chant, Will, Will, Will. (laughs) And my mom still likes to tell that story, much to his embarrassment, right? There's a part of us that that's what we want all our lives, even if we don't say it out loud after we're six, right? That is the bad definition of glory, and that's what Jesus is saying we as followers need to leave behind. Or or maybe a better way is we need to channel that in to the person we want to be saying will, will, will is God the Father. And even if no one else in the room is saying it, we're content if God the Father and Jesus are saying that. Okay, It's really hard. Um, We're going to see everyone turn on Jesus, including the disciples, Um, but the disciples figure it all out later, which is why we have this book that we're studying today. All right. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes. Right. So, yeah, one of the things the Old Testament talks a lot about um, is it says one of the ways God's glory manifests itself is this radiance, right, that people can actually see, and it's overwhelming. And um, 
what's important, though, I think to connect here is what makes God glorious in that sense. And what Jesus is revealing is it's not because people necessarily recognize God as glorious. It's his attributes, his holiness, and what's emphasized here, even his willingness to suffer for the benefit of others. And so this is the connection we need to make. Why is Jesus going through this pain? It's because he wants to make it possible for humanity to have a relationship with God. He is doing this utterly for our benefit, even though no one appreciates it. That kind of love is, and is what makes God have that radiance. As humans, we kind of get it twisted. You are impressive because everyone realizes you're impressive. Jesus is saying, no, it's being actually good and loving towards others. And I think if you can grasp that, to me, it makes God seem less self-centered when you talk about, well, God's glorious and he wants us to recognize that he's glorious. Right. And the way that perfect goodness manifests has an actual radiance as it's presented in the Old Testament. I agree. Did you have a comment? Right. And to pick up on just one of the aspects of what you were sharing, I think as John goes on, he's eventually, Jesus is eventually going to share that the Holy Spirit's coming. And I think one of the purposes of that is so that even when the world is mocking and ridiculing us, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us is to assure us that we have that relationship, that we are headed in the right direction, um, and the comfort role of the Holy Spirit becomes very important when you're encountering those difficult situations. Well, I, I definitely think that's one of our takeaways from the glimpses of glory that we get is that, yes, um, you know, especially in the current state of the world, 
He's up here. We're down here. And when someone like Isaiah experiences the glimpse of the glory of God, his reaction is, woe to me. Look at how awful I am in comparison, right? Um, and we'll come back because there's a little more I want to share on that theme, um, but further down. But I think that is a natural reaction, especially right now, is if you get a glimpse of that, oh my, I'm terrible, right? Okay. Now, interestingly, Jesus reveals that this is stressful even for him. He says, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So let's pause there. So the first big reveal we get is that part of the experience of being both human and divine, Jesus says, and he's the best guide as to what that was like, none of us really know other than what he tells us about it, um, is that he could experience stress and that the prospect of what he's about to go through is intimidating and stressful even to him. And he chooses to push through that anyway. And there's all kinds of debate. If you dig into this, uh, commentators are kind of all over the map on how comfortable they are with the idea of Jesus being stressed out. There's a camp that wants to say, not really. He's the God-man. This is a done deal from the beginning. So yeah, it says he's stressed out, but he's not really stressed. And they really try to minimize that stress. There are others that are more comfortable with it. And that's kind of been a debate that's swung back and forth through Christianity for centuries as to how far you're willing to take that. I'm firmly in the why is it a bad thing to think that Jesus was stressed and chose to do the right thing anyway. Um, I don't see that as a problem. So I kind of side with the commentators that are comfortable saying he's stressed, he chooses to do the right thing anyway, that's a model for us. Okay? Um, then there's this weird thing about the voice. How does John... Yeah. Right, and so the, the comment is, wouldn't it be reasonable to say if you have perfect faith that you wouldn't worry? Is that what you said? Yeah, that's reasonable. I think this shows it's not right. And that's why there's been a debate, is that is a reasonable view to take, that if you had perfect faith, you wouldn't worry. 
And I think the only reason we know otherwise is because Jesus says, I'm worried. But I think that's why there's been a debate, is some people can't get past that idea. Um, And I guess one analogy I would say is, has there ever been something that you were sure would happen, and yet it generated emotions anyway? Um, I think there can be. And so I think even though Jesus is fully committed to doing what God wants him to do, that doesn't mean he still knows it's going to hurt. And so it still generates stress. Yeah, and the way I would put it is, um, I think is, if you're not careful, where you could go with the first proposition, which is, isn't it reasonable that if you had perfect faith, you would never worry, is that the emotion of worry is always a sin. And I think that would be misleading and could be harmful in terms of discipleship. I think... um, You know, Martin Luther said, supposedly, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you don't have to let them build a nest in your hair. And so I think emotions like stress and worry are going to come, but what do you do with them? Do you take them to God? Are you able to carry through in a godly way despite those emotions? Then you haven't sinned. If you allow worry and stress to paralyze you, and keep you from moving forward with God's will, then I think it can become sin. But I think it would be wrong to say the emotion of worry is always sin, and that's where I think running with that proposition takes you. It's one of the reasons I disagree with it. Right. Right. And I don't, I can't remember whether John talks about it or whether it's the other Gospels, but you know, they talk about Jesus praying in Gethsemane and actually sweating blood, and the doctors have come along and said that indicates he's under so much stress, his capillaries are breaking down. And so, you know, to me, that doesn't sound like someone that because he has a divine nature is unable to experience stress. I think he did, and it's because of the weight that you just described that he's carrying for us. Yeah, I agree. So it sounds like more, yeah. Well, and, and we talk about Jesus suffering, but I think that's 
I agree. And so I think if you took that proposition and ran with it, you'd take away the emotional anguish that I think is clearly portrayed in Scripture. And it's one of the things that makes us identify with them and sympathetic. I mean, the fact that God is willing to do this to provide a means for us to have a relationship with him is pretty incredible. And to me, it's one of the attractive aspects of the gospel. Anything else? Right, and so, um, and and that's a nice modern summary of what um, Athanasius argues when they're developing the creeds, is that, you know, the reason God went the incarnation route is that um, you need a human to represent and be the savior for other humans. You need a divine being to be able to satisfy the wrath of a divine God, and so you end up Um, at a place where a human divine, let's call him man, um, is the perfect savior for humanity. You need both. And, you know, God's God, so there probably were other ways he could have done it, but that's what he chose, and there's this wonderful logic to it, I think, that gets revealed in the Gospels. All right, let's keep going. So there's some interesting questions about how John knows what the voice said. Um, Some people think the disciples could also hear what the voice says. Um, Others think Jesus told the disciples. We don't know. Um, We do know that thunder and angels were certainly divine manifestations. So even the crowd thinks they observed some sort of divine affirmation of what Jesus has been saying. Um, so what we know from Jesus' statement is that God the Father is affirming that Jesus has been on track throughout his ministry. He's still on track. God the Father knows exactly what Jesus is about to do. God the Father appreciates it and will glorify it, even though no human beings are going to get it when it happens. Okay? Then Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Oh, here the commentators go all over the map, too. In what sense is the voice for your benefit, not mine? And some mean it's a rel- some think it's a relative statement. So what he really means is more for your benefit than for me, but I get some benefit from it, too, which I think kind of makes sense on the in the context, because Jesus understands it better than everyone else. I don't have a problem with him getting encouragement from God the Father in this moment. We're told after the temptation at the beginning of his ministry, angels come and minister to him. So if it's okay for angels to come and minister him, why wouldn't it be okay for God the Father to encourage him? But the same crowd that didn't like what I was saying earlier doesn't like that idea either. Why would Jesus need encouragement from the voice? Because he's Jesus. So those two sides are out there. That debate continues here. But I think another layer going on um, is that what Jesus is about to do is for our benefit, not his. 
So even if you take the view that what God the Father is doing here is encouraging Jesus to continue with their agreed-upon plan to sacrifice himself, that's for our benefit, not Jesus. All right. Now, this is really key. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. It's just two little clauses, but huge implications for the whole biblical story. So what Jesus reveals and what no one gets is that when he goes and allows himself to be crucified, it looks like he's passively allowing the world to judge and defeat him. But what he says is spiritually he is attacking Satan defeating Satan, and driving Satan out. So what looks like scorn, ridicule, and defeat to all of us is actually victory, winning, driving Satan out. Okay? There's this wonderful irony. Jesus is about to get tried. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be sent off to be crucified. The Jewish leaders, the Romans, the crowd, everyone's getting together on that. What Jesus says is, no, no, no. There is a higher divine court, and in that divine court, that judgment that you render against me is actually condemnation of yourself. You are condemning yourself by judging me. And the, the head of that entire system, of which the Jewish leadership and the Romans were just a small part, what John calls the world, is Satan. And I am defeating the world system, even as the world system thinks it's defeating me. So, go back to Zechariah. What Jesus understands is that with the fall, humanity essentially traded Satan for God as our master. And from that point forward, you can talk about Satan as the prince of this world. And so um, one of the places in the Old Testament where that comes out clearly is like Daniel, where an angel comes to talk to Daniel and he says, hey, the prince of Persia was making life difficult for me, then Michael came and helped me. And you get this idea that behind all the world systems and everything humanity does apart from God is this spiritual realm headed by Satan. And what Jesus understands is that before you can fix politics, you've got to free humanity from Satan and sin. And so when you look at verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. The first pit you and I need to be released from is the pit of sin and our bondage to Satan. And until that, fixing politics will do you no good. And this gets back to the theme of glory. How could we coexist with a being that's perfectly glorious? If God were to suddenly wipe out everything wrong with the earth, 
Would I belong there? The answer currently is no. As soon as I showed up, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. And if you let me live there for any length of time, I would ruin it, right? So what you learn is that before this place can be made perfect, before politics can be fixed, humanity has to be fixed. And so what you're doing when you choose to follow Jesus is you are saying, I agree, I need to be fixed, and I'm willing to let God fix me. We talk about justification, then sanctification, then glorification. When you get to that end of the fixing process at the resurrection, then you're fit to live in a place that has perfect politics. And Jesus understands the order that that needs to happen. No one else wants it to happen in that order. We think our problem is the Romans. We think our problem is not having enough money. We think our problem is not having perfect health. And if God would just fix all that, things would be great. Jesus is teaching us, and it's a hard lesson to learn. It's an easy lesson to learn intellectually. It's a hard lesson to get emotionally. Is that we need to be patient. God is not slow. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He understands the order this needs to happen, and he's looking for a few good men and women who are willing to suffer along with them to help that process happen. So, two short clauses, they make huge sense to me out of what's going on in the whole biblical plot from Genesis to Revelation. Comments, questions, concerns. All right. What he, let's tackle one more big issue. But when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So we've talked about this in past lessons, that Jesus and John refer to being crucified as being lifted up, because that's literally what happens. You're stuck up there on a pole. Um, In John and Jesus' mind, that's the beginning of the glorification that he's talking about. It continues through his ascension and exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. So it's part of a long process. Um, Here's another irony. I'm sure crucifixions were horrible things to look at. But Jesus says, that is the process of drawing all people to myself. There's a huge uh, debate about what he means when he says, draw all men to myself. Because we know from experience and the rest of the Gospel of John, not everyone is going to accept the offer of eternal life Jesus gives. And he talks about how some people who reject him are going to be condemned. So what does it mean when he says, all people will be drawn to me? So there are two ways you can go at this. Uh, One way is to qualify what he means by all men and say what he's saying is, I will draw all types of men. And there might be some good contextual reasons for going that route, because remember what kicks off this whole section is a request from some Greeks to meet with him. 
And that's part of the Zechariah prophecy too. And so what may be going on here is that Jesus is responding to that inquiry from the Greeks by saying, I am doing this for all types of human beings, not just Jews, but every type of human out there. And so I will draw all types of people to myself. Um, Another way to qualify it would be to say, well, it's possible to have drawing in the sense of an invitation to believe. We have those kinds of invitations given out all throughout the Gospel of John. Whoever believes, whoever drinks of the water that I would give, on and on and on. Um, So there's a sense in which an open invitation is extended to humanity in the Gospel of John, but not all except the offer Um, He talks more about that in a few verses. Um, That's something that both God and humans are involved in. So those are the two ways you could qualify that and still make sense out of drawing all people to God. Questions, comments, concerns about that? All right. Let's cover just a little bit more. So this totally confuses the crowd. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So what the crowd is saying, and I think it's important to acknowledge this, is, hey, we've read Zechariah 2. We seem to see a straight line between the Messiah showing up and there being this endless peace and this reign forever. So how can you say that's not so. And so we need to respect Jesus' opponents and crowd and realize they are looking at the scripture and they are making a reasonable argument based on scripture. Jesus is just telling them they're wrong. And Jesus doesn't really go into a lengthy argument. He basically just says, trust me. He says, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. So keep in mind, the first century, this is pre-street lights. This is pre-cell phones. If you want to take a journey, you need to be able to see. Everyone knows you can't see when night falls. So if you need to make a journey and it's daylight, you need to leave now because that's how you're going to get where you want to go. So it's urgent to leave while the daylight is happening. Jesus says, look, I'm revealing what you need to do. You need to act now, else spiritual darkness may fall on you. You never know how long you have to accept Jesus' offer. So you need to act now. It's a matter of urgency. Um, In his case, in that particular moment, literal urgency because he's about to be crucified but even now none of us know how long we have to contemplate the gospel so jesus message is as soon as you hear this believe it because you don't know how long you have all right we better pause there i've taken you over time but i think we basically made it through the passage